Well, good morning, everybody. It's, it's good to be back uh, with you. Uh, it's been a few weeks since I've been here, and I have to tell you, I've missed being together with God's people. That need for fellowship is something that's very important for us that Pastor Adam was just talking about. God never intended us to live the Christian life in isolation, but he intended us to live it together. And so for those of you who may be watching online and those of you who are here, first of all, some of you have talked to me this morning. This is your first Sunday back. Welcome back into the fellowship. As you can see, we're taking precautions. And for some of you that may be at home, especially seniors, uh, we're not encouraging people who are high risk to be coming. That's a choice that you make individually. But for our seniors who may be a little bit afraid about coming back, we want you to know we have a service going on right now uh, down in the adult wing of our building, which is totally isolated. You can come in as a senior and be together with other seniors there and not be exposed. Everybody there is wearing masks throughout the entire service. So let me encourage you, if the only thing keeping you from coming is fear, is that God has not intended us to live our lives fearful. Now, you make the decision that God is directing you to make, but don't spend the last years of your life living in fear, because that's not something that God wants us to do. Well, this morning we are going to begin the book of Jude. So I would encourage you to join me there, the book of Jude. I met him and talked to him, I think, twice. I know for certain once, but I believe it was two separate times. Uh, The first time that I did so, he had come to Maranatha. This was back when we were meeting over at Springfield High School. And he came there as a part of a Christian band for an outreach that we were doing. He actually played the drums with that band and spoke at that event. The second time that I believe that I talked with him was he had been a youth pastor at a church in Michigan, and then he had become an associate pastor there. And as an associate pastor in that church, he had begun a Saturday night service Uh, It was something that was starting to spread in those days. It was designed as an outreach service, and it was greatly successful. People were flocking to it, so I went up to observe what they were doing to see if that might be something that Maranatha could consider doing. Uh, The church that he was in, the pastor that he is serving with, was a very sound pastor and well-known throughout the country. From being the associate pastor there, he went out to start a church, and the church just exploded. I wasn't surprised at that. He's a very charismatic personality. 
People like him. They are drawn to him and to his wife. And he was a very effective communicator. Uh, Not only did he have his church that he was preaching in, but he developed a series of videos that a lot of young adults and young pastors and even youth pastors here at Maranatha Bible Church just loved those teaching videos that he was doing because they were very creative. And he was a very creative guy and effective. From there, he started writing some books. And he became a best-selling author. And of course, with that... Becoming a best-selling author comes the speaking tours that go along with that. So eventually, he was seen at various different events. He was a hot commodity. And you would see him on TV as people were interviewing him, especially as he wrote one book that was, let's just say, not just a little bit controversial, but very controversial. So everything is going great, except for one problem. What he was teaching was heresy. That, in part, is what Jude is writing about. Follow with me as I begin with verse 1 of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints." For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, 
and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in autumn twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting on the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of other darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. And they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And as you can see, there's a lot to cover there. Actually, I could probably take a couple months in unfolding everything that we find here in the book of Jude, but this morning we are going to zero in on this thought of contending for the faith. Now, as we come to the book of Jude, the first thing I want you to know is about the author, Jude. Actually, his full correct name would be Judas. Uh, The writers of the English Bible have shortened it to Jude so that he would not be confused with Judas Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord. There are several different Judes that are found in the Bible, but consensus is that this is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. He is also the brother of James. You see that in verse 1. We see a little bit of humility there on the part of Jude. I mean, think about it. If you were introducing yourself and you had Jesus as a half-brother, how would you introduce yourself if you wanted to impress people? It would probably be, hey, you know, I'm Butch, uh, the brother of Jesus. But Jude is showing some humility that he's not going to introduce himself that way. He's going to talk about the fact that he, he will say that he's the brother of James, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem, but he is going to say concerning himself and Jesus Christ that he was a servant of Jesus. Now, keep in mind, Jesus had several half-brothers and sisters uh, Contrary to the teaching of some churches that Mary remained a perpetual virgin, uh, that does not line up with what the Scriptures have to tell us. So here we have the half-brother of Jesus who regards himself as a servant. This book is written somewhere between 60 and 80 A.D. It is very similar to the message of Second Peter. 
So some of the material is covered in both 2 Peter and in Jude, has led scholars to believe that one of those two books was written first, and it is uh, very likely that Jude and Peter knew one another, and so therefore they talked about things, and that's why we would find the repetition of some of the material from 2 Peter also included here in June. That's why we give you this, this range of 60 to 80 A.D., because we're not certain whether Jude was written first or Second Peter was written first. But because of words that are used, it is obvious that the author was aware of the other book. Who is he writing to? Who are the recipients? He tells us that in verse 1. Those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things you're going to find as you go through the book of Jude is Jude write, likes to write in triads. He'll put three things together, and you'll see that over and over again. I may not point them all out as we go through this part of the book of Jude, but it should be obvious to you as you're looking at it how he groups three things together. And here, those that he's writing to, he says, you are called. All of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have been called by God. We are beloved in God the Father. God loves us. We are his children, and as his children, though it is true that God loves the whole world, there's a special love that he has for those who are his children who follow him. And the kept for Jesus Christ. Remember, as believers, John told us that we are a gift that the Father gives to the Son. So we are kept for Jesus. That's why I believe we can never lose our salvation, because it's a work of God, first of all. And secondly, we are a gift that the Father gives to the Son. And for us to lose our salvation would mean that God the Father gives something to the Son that can be taken away from the Son. So he's writing to the called, the beloved, and the kept. And his purpose is to contend for the faith. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, I was eager to write to you about the common salvation. I wanted to address you and talk about the salvation that we all have in common. When he uses the word common, he doesn't mean that it's something that has little value. It is common to everyone who is a true believer in Jesus Christ. The unity that we have in Christ is based upon the work of the Spirit in our lives, and it is a common salvation. You know, sometimes within the body of Christ, we have squabbles with one another. And we have lots of different churches, lots of different denominations out there. But if people believe in Jesus, if people believe in Jesus as the Scriptures portray Him to us, we are brothers and sisters, and we are in the same family. 
Now, that is why as a church, we don't want to be known as those who criticize other churches or talk about other churches negatively because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And unfortunately, just as in our human families, sometimes some of our biggest fights are with family members rather than those outside the family. Now, I was shocked and really pleased to find this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said this concerning our salvation, our common salvation. He says, Upon other matters, there are distinctions among believers, but yet there is a common salvation enjoyed by the Arminian as well as the Calvinist, possessed by the Presbyterian as well as the Episcopalian, prized by the Quaker as well as by the Baptist. Those who are in Christ are more near of kin than they know of, And their intense unity in deep essential truth is a greater force than most of them imagine. We are brothers and sisters in Christ because we share a common salvation. And James says, I'm sorry, Jude says, that's what I wanted to talk to you about, but I couldn't. Because there's something more important that I need to talk to you about. I need to talk to you about contending for the faith. Because he goes on to say, then, verse 4, for certain people, he is warning them about certain people. Now, notice he doesn't call out their names. There are places in Scripture where Paul will talk about people who did evil to him. He will talk about certain people to beware of. Jude, however, doesn't say who these people are because those in the church would know who they were and who he was talking about. But I think also because this book is a part of Scripture and was intended for us as well, that we need to recognize that there are those out there who pretend to be a part of the body of Christ but are not true believers in Christ. So this is applicable for all time and for the entire life of the church. The warning, certain people. Now, Jude is going to give us a lot of different statements concerning these people. Now, I'm going to go through them quickly with you this morning, but let's see what he says about these certain people, the warning. First of all, he says in verse 4 that they crept in unnoticed. So they've come into the church, and they weren't pointed out. They weren't recognized immediately. They slipped in to the church. You know, that's always the case. The church always has to be on guard for those who will come into the church with false motives. They will creep in seeking to turn the church from sound doctrine to false doctrine. We have dealt with that in the past here at Maranatha. 
We have confronted it where we have needed to. We have talked with individuals, and there are those that we have put out of the church because of their refusal to stop spreading false teaching within the church. But these individuals creep in unnoticed. Verse 4 says that they are condemned. It says, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So they are not believers. They appear to be believers, but they are not believers because they have been condemned by God. Verse 4 also says they are ungodly. Verse 4 tells us they have perverted grace. You know, we always have to be careful with this message of grace. Oh, it's a wonderful message, isn't it not? Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? Aren't we thrilled that God is a God of love, a God of grace, and a God of mercy? But it is very easy for someone to take that gospel of grace and twist it into something that is perverted and to lead people astray. That's what these people were doing. Verse 4 tells us they deny Jesus. It says they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, how do they do that? They do it two separate ways. Number one, they do it by attacking who Jesus is. There's a lot of heresy going on in the early church. There were those who would not believe that Jesus is the individual that the Scriptures portray to us. We've talked about that as we were going through 1 John, that Jesus is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And they find ways to twist that and change that. So they deny who Jesus really is. And secondly, they do this by denying that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Anyone who teaches that there is more than one way of salvation is teaching heresy. Anyone who's teaching that you can somehow get from here into heaven without going through Jesus is giving you heresy. They deny Jesus. If you jump over to verse 8, it says they rely on dreams. Now, as we preach the Word of God, what is it that we rely upon? What is it? Come on, we should know this. As a, as a congregation together, we base everything we believe on the Word of God. Not on dreams, not on visions, but on the Word of God. We always have those who will come along and will tell us something different, and they will say something to the effect, uh, well, this was revealed to me in a dream. I can remember once being in a Bible study, a group of individuals, the small church that I was pastoring, and one of the ladies who was in this study who was very, very strong-willed and had uh, no qualms about expressing her opinions about something. 
was sharing with the group that she knew something to be true because her grandmother had appeared to her in a dream the night before. And her grandmother had been dead for years. And I could remember uh, another lady in the Bible study saying, Butch, are you going to tell her or do I need to tell her? (laughs) That that dream wasn't her grandmother, that came straight from the devil. Now that always works well in a small group of people. I don't know whether her dream was because of something that she ate before she went to bed that she shouldn't have eaten, but this much I know, that dream and that message that she was sharing did not come from her dead grandmother. They rely on dreams. And you know, I used to at times be skeptical about whether these individuals sometimes made up these dreams. But the more I've studied things and looked at things, if you look at almost every false religion in the world, what you're going to find is some claim of an angel or a dream or something that came to that individual. Let's remember that Satan can transform himself even into an angel of light to deceive individuals. They rely on dreams. Verse 8 tells us they defile the flesh. In other words, in defiling the flesh, they have taken the grace of God and turned it into license. And they have taken the grace of God and used that as a basis of saying that all kinds of sexual immorality is okay. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. No one's going to tell them what to do. They were rejecting the authority even of the apostles and saying, you're not going to tell us what to do. We've had a dream. This is where we've gotten our information from. We will proclaim what we want to proclaim. And you have no right as a church to be an authority over us. Unfortunately, even yet today, I find many Christians that wander from church to church to church is because they want no one to be in authority over them. God has placed us within this body of believers and that we all need those to be in authority over us. Any individual who has no one that he is accountable to will end up going astray. We all need to be accountable to someone. Verse 8 we're told that they blaspheme. And it says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, I would take that reference to the glorious ones to refer to angels. They blaspheme angels. In verse 9, and one of the reasons I take it to be angels is because what verse 9 says, it says, when the archangel Michael, see how they goes from blaspheming glorious ones right into the archangel Michael. Michael, says that contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. There's a whole sermon right there. What's this dispute about the body of Moses about? It says, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. 
You know, sometimes I hear some of these television preachers and others walking about saying that they are rebuking devils and rebuking Satan himself and rebuking false spirits. Michael the archangel, and actually in Scripture, Michael is the only angel that is called an archangel. He is the leader of the angels, angels who have more power and strength than any of us have. Michael himself would not rebuke Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuke. So these false teachers blaspheme even the angels that are the servants of God. Verse 11, he says, woe to them. Woe to them. Judgment upon them. And he says, for they walk in the way of Cain. I want to stop here for just a moment because we will be going back and looking at different examples that are given here. But look at verse 5 at the beginning of it. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, Jude is going to use different allusions and different references to other things that are in the Scriptures, and he says, I want to remind you of these things, although you once fully knew it. So as we talk about these different references to the Old Testament, I want you to ask yourself the question, were you aware of them? Do you know these stories from the Old Testament? Because if not, you need to grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures. Jude assumed that these individuals to whom he was writing would know about these things, and he is merely reminding them of it. You know, one of the things I have found, having been in ministry now for 45 years, is that one of the things that has changed when I first began in ministry, when people would come to church, whether they were believers or guests, unbelievers that were coming, I could make a reference to an Old Testament story or an Old Testament figure, and they all knew what I was talking about, or at least the vast majority of them did. Today, anytime I refer to an Old Testament character, I feel that I need to go back and explain the story of that character because people have not heard the stories. They've not read the Bible. They're not aware of who those individuals are. For instance, if I were to talk about Noah, most people would think it was the Noah that was portrayed in movies a few years ago, in the movie Noah that has nothing to do whatsoever with how the Bible talks about Noah. So we should know these stories. Speaking of these people... Jude says, they walk in the way of Cain. Well, what was the way of Cain? He thought he could worship God any way he wanted to. He didn't have to follow the directions that God had given. And he thought he could bring anything he wanted to. Not even his best. And bring it to God. And God would be pleased with it. 
This is what these false teachers are saying. Not only do they walk in the way of Cain, they follow Balaam's error. But what was the error of Balaam? Story is told to us in the book of Numbers. Balaam, who was a prophet, was willing to sell his skills for money. And when that didn't work out so well to him, for him, he advised a way to get God not to bless his people by encouraging uh, the enemies of God to get the children of Israel to disobey God, and that would bring God's judgment upon them. So these false teachers follow Balaam's error. We're told in verse 11, they perished in Korah's rebellion. Now, who was Korah? He was a man who stood up against Moses and said, God hasn't spoken by Moses alone. He has also spoken by others. And God ended up in a very dramatic way, showing that Korah was not speaking for him. Verse 12, we're told they're hidden reefs. Uh, I like that particular word can also mean blemishes. They are blemishes at the love feasts. When the people of God get together to love one another and to share a meal with one another, they were like blemishes on that love feast. Verse 12 tells us they were without fear. And I'm going to have to speed up a little bit here this morning, so stick with me as we go now. Uh, They were shepherds feeding themselves. A shepherd is to take care of the flock. Instead, these individuals were just taking care of themselves. That's in verse 12. In verse 12, they are waterless clouds. Say, what's that? It's a cloud that looks like it's going to bring rain, but there's no water in it. You know, many of us would like to have a little rain for our uh, yards, our flowers, our gardens right now. And I can remember the other day, the skies were all dark over our house. And I thought, oh, wow, we're going to get some rain. But guess what? No rain came. That's what he's talking about. Clouds that look like they're going to bring something, but they bring nothing. They're fruitless trees in autumn, according to verse 12. In the autumn, trees should be bearing fruit, but instead, they're all dried up, and they are producing nothing. Verse 13 says, they are wild waves of the sea. You know, today, we think of the sea as a very pleasant place. Just a couple of weeks ago, and why Barb and I haven't been here for a couple of weeks, we went down to the ocean because we love to go to the ocean. In these days, the ocean was something that was feared, and it was looked at as a place of terror. They are wild waves, then they're wandering stars. What are wandering stars? It'd be like a comet. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. It's not like a star that is fixed in the sky that you can use as a point of reference. They're wandering stars. Verse 16 says they're grumblers, malcontents, loud mouth boasters, and they show favoritism. Not a pretty picture, is it? These are the people that you need to beware of. 
Next, I want us to see the reminder. The reminder. In verses 5 through 7, we have three reminders. These are things that Jude is saying you should know about these things. First of all, the reminder of Israel. Israel that was taken out of Egypt and was headed to the promised land, because they did not believe God, they were not allowed to go in to the promised land. Even though they started out fine coming from Egypt, when they came to the promised land, you will remember, they believed the report of the ten spies and they refused to go into the land. So they all perished in the wilderness. Next we have the fallen angels. Those who did not keep the estate where God placed them. God is now holding them in everlasting change. There's a whole sermon on that as well that I could preach. Next, we have the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, where it says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. You know, there's an attempt today to say that God did not judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for the sin of homosexuality. And certainly there are other things, pride and their lack of taking care of those less fortunate than themselves, which was a part of the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jude is making it clear here as well that homosexuality was part of the reason for the judgment that came upon them. It says, he says, they pursued unnatural desires. And friends, I don't care what is politically correct this day. In our culture, the truth is that homosexuality is a sin against God. Now, it's not greater than any other sin. And those who are critical of the church have said, we seem to look the other way about the sin of adultery while condemning this sin. But within the scriptures, all sexual sin is condemned by God. And we do not hate those who choose a lifestyle of homosexuality. We are not advocating that they be punished. We love them with the love of Jesus and want them to come to find Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. So let's not make this sin any greater than any other sin, but let's also not excuse this and try to change it so it is acceptable to our culture. Then he will talk about, over in verse 14, Enoch, and how Enoch, whose story is told us in Genesis and then in the book of Hebrews, he walked with God and he was not because God took him home. He quotes from a book called the book of Enoch. Now, we don't have that book today. It, was, it is thought that Noah preserved the book of Enoch in the ark and that it was a book that was widely read and known by the early church and by the apostles. What happened to it, we do not know. And it doesn't mean that the whole book of Enoch 
was inspired Scripture. It only means that the part that Jude quotes was correct because Jude is a part of the Scripture. And Jude tells us that that he that Enoch preached, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch, one of the first individuals that lived and dwelled on our earth, preached about Jesus coming back one day and executing judgment. This book is a warning. Contend for the faith. So what's our takeaway this morning for us? First of all, let me just talk very briefly about this common salvation. Is it common to you? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Do you recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of God, who went to the cross and died so that you can be saved? Have you put your faith and trust in him? I say to you this morning on the authority of the word of God, he is the one and the only way to heaven. No one will get there except they go through Jesus. And secondly, to let us know as a church, sound doctrine is worth contending for. I know that there is a call from time to time that says, love unites, but doctrine divides. And there is some truth to that statement. But love uniting us as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should be united, is on the basis of the doctrine that we believe. And certainly, there have been too many battles and too much heat generated over minor doctrines. But the major doctrines of the Scripture that relate to Jesus, who He is, and what He has done, and how we can be saved, We must contend for them and never, ever let ourselves be silenced from proclaiming the truth. And my prayer is that this church will stay true to that commission until Jesus comes back for his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear it is, Lord. And Father, I just pray that you would help us, that every person here would experience this common salvation. Thank you for sending your son for us. And secondly, Lord, I would pray this morning that that which is sounded from the platform of this church both now until Jesus comes back will be that which honors you and that which is consistent with the truth of your word. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.